Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. We are nearing the end of introductory psychology. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. We're almost there. Chapter 15 of 16. I'm, I can't really wrap my brain around that we've been doing this so long. 39 mm-hmm. episodes. Whoop, whoop. Gearing up on a year. I know. It's so exciting. I can't believe I've been so consistent for a year, especially through COVID. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the most consistent thing I've been on, you know, been doing <laughs> for like the last 10 years. Uh, <laughs> a creative project that actually worked out. What? It's amazing. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens after 52 episodes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. I do, before we get started, I think we should probably, like, trigger warning just a little bit. Um, We're going to be talking about some heavy stuff, um, particularly around deaths of despair, which involve uh, addiction, um, alcoholism, opiates, and uh, suicide. So if you're listening and those are sensitive topics, just be aware that that's going to be coming down the pike at some point in this conversation. Yeah, these these uh, last couple of chapters, psychological disorders, psychological therapy, and then we'll be talking about some health stuff. We're talking about trauma next trauma week. Next so. week. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we kind of like really kind of dodged the sort of traumatic side of things in the last um, the last episode. Uh, but this one, uh, we, we can't really you can't really shy away from it when you want to talk about mental illness and, and treatment especially if we want to expand upon treatment more so than we're just going to talk about, let's say a intro psych book where we're just mm-hmm. talking about these are different methods of treatment. This is kind of basic ways in which we treat. Here's some general types of therapy. Uh, we want to go a little further. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to talk about the DSM and some social aspects of onset diagnosis, treatment, everything in between. Absolutely. Um, We figured it would be appropriate to tackle the Holy Bible of psychology because we reference the DSM all the time and it kind of looms like a specter over us sometimes. Like we all know what it is. It's like the authority of mental health, but rarely do we dive into the weeds of it and actually look at what's going on with the DSM. At least in my experience going to undergrad uh, in my, you know, clinical counseling classes that I attended, um, it was treated rather re- uh, reverently and unquestioningly in a lot of ways. It was just kind of like, this is what it is, and this is how we use it, which is absolutely great. But that's not what we're here to do today. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I have at one point in my teaching career kind of been a bit reverent towards it, but mostly in a way of saying, like, you know, you know this is kind of where we compile some of some of what we know, some of the basic information, it's very medical. Mm-hmm. Definitely let my students know that. Um, but it, it, it's written to be kind of like that. I mean, it's it's in the same way. You know, when you think about kind of the beginnings of clinical psychology, it starts with psychiatry. So it starts with medicine. It really isn't until post-World War II that we start seeing this, this growth of the field of clinical psychology because all these soldiers are coming back from war and there are not enough psychiatrists to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, to help them and so there's this this almost I mean even today there's this 
heightened connection between a lot of like clinical psychology programs and aspects of the VA. And that's something that goes back to the beginning of clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it has that medical focus. It's like that idea, if you want to understand the flu, you look at all these cases of the flu and you try to come up with a condensed set of symptoms. But you also know that two people get the flu and one of them has a really runny nose and one of them has a stronger fever than the other. There are these subtleties and, and any, any good person trying to tackle the DSM needs to understand that there are a lot of symptoms Mm-hmm. And you don't need all of those symptoms. Like depression, I think, has nine to 12 symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need four or five to be diagnosed right. with depression. And some of them are contradictory. Yes. You know, there's nothing like war to uh, study acute symptomology of mental illness. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, or at least to, you know, when enough people come back, you can't ignore some of the problems, mm. you know, which is why kind of the development of uh, like this kind of corresponds with the development of like PTSD is that you can kind of ignore some of the symptoms, you call it shell shock, you call it battle fatigue in like World War One, mm-hmm. And, but then a bunch of people come back and it's just, you can't ignore um, that there's something, something more than just calling it like fatigue, right? Uh, weariness, um, you know, shell shock, something like that. That, that there's definitely something that you can see across a broader spectrum of individuals. You start to see it non-combatants who experience trauma. And then you go, oh, well, maybe we need to put this in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely, a, the, the book functions very uh, politically. And I don't mean that as in like partisan electoralism politically. Like it's essentially lets you, lets the clinician know like what that categorizes people and their symptomologies very much in a uh, medical gazy kind of way um, in order to organize society and understand the nuances of human behavior. Yeah. And, and it's gotten, a, I mean, we're going to talk about its problems. <laughs> yes. But especially if you look at the older editions, it's, it has gotten better <laughs> in right. a lot of ways we're starting to see greater like greater degrees of spectrum as opposed to singular diagnosis you know, we're we're seeing more like varied uh, social factors kind of come into play a little bit um, yeah. or at least an understanding amongst the professionals that there's like this broader discussion going on within the field as opposed to within the people who are making the book the book's kind of trying to keep it very straightforward but there are people you know having these broader discussions about how different groups, social environmental factors, um, cultural differences, a number of things, because there are various versions of the DSM. There's a, um, depending on what country of the world you live in or what region of the world you live in that that Mm -hmm. do note some culturally specific disorders that we do not see in Mm -hmm. the United States. Um, You can still find them in the US DSM. It's it's always, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at like those, some of those cultural differences, but they're not going to tell you the cultural reasons necessarily why. They're just going to tell you right. what the diagnosis is. So they kind of leave right. that out. Yeah, if we had a cultural psychologist on with us, they would probably be more vehemently opposed. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, sure, they do mention it, but they only mention it. Right. <laughs> I guess the other disclaimer before we get terribly into it is that obviously Daniel and I are not clinical psychologists. We're yep. not trained 
in clinical psychology and uh, nothing that we say should be misconstrued as medical advice whatsoever. Oh yeah, def- definitely on the medical advice end. And even if we were clinical psychologists, the ethics would, would say that we were not going to give you advice medically. Yes. We, we're gonna don't, don't, definitely go see your therapist if you are having problems and if you can afford it. Yeah. And if, if not, if, if you're at a university, most universities will have a clinic on campus free for mm-hmm. students. If you're not in a university, um, there are a number of like nonprofits and, and, and others that can help with that. I mean, especially with some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Hot, hotlines and, and other resources that you can reach out to. Definitely go and talk to them. So definitely, like, we may get a little, you know, as we usually do, but this is not a uh, disparagement of the field overall or the utility of mental health care. Yeah, of course not. No, and, and definitely, um, we can look at the positives, we can look at the change, and we can look at how, I mean, if we're going to talk about social change, you go back to the DSM-2 <laughs> or 3, and you look at what was a psychological disorder. Look at things that aren't. A psychological disorder anymore. Language changes because we realize that calling something MR is a derogatory term because mm-hmm. of the way people utilize it as slang. And so now we call it intellectual disability. And we'll probably yeah. change that name. Oh, yeah. This time next year, wait, intellectual disability will be out of vogue this time next year. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, and, and some of the other phrases and, and terminologies that we use, I mean, you go back far enough, if, you know, early, early clinicians trained in psychosis and all these other terms that we do not use anymore. And it's probably for the best. Things are more complex than a singular diagnosis that kind of describes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of diagnoses in the DSM. So I guess we should probably talk about how, how do they get in there? Yes. Yeah, so I think what's a really good piggyback off of our conversation about intellectual disability is that kind of the first uh, move towards categorizing or tracking mental illness um, occurred in the 1840s in the U.S. Census, where they added idiocy slash insanity as a yes-no category to the census, um, which was vehemently opposed by the American Statistical Association. (laughs) And so after that, there were a couple iterations. There was the American Psychiatric Association Manual in 1917. Um, Then there was Medical 203 in 1943. And then the um, ICD-6 in 1949 from the World Health Organization. But the first iteration of the DSM we see is DSM-1 in 1952. And it was very Freudian. That doesn't surprise me. Very Freudian. Uh, they mentioned that a lot of the language about the... So the language shifts um, in kind of ex- explanations as to what a mental health condition is. So like in the Freudian <laughs> sense, the all of the diagnoses were like reactions to the social environment. Oh. Constructed that way. And so it was kind of like the ego responding. Ah and negotiating with like the superego, et cetera. This is the addition of the DSM, of course, that uh, labeled homosexuality as a psychopathic personality disturbance, but that was taken out in later editions. Then, you know, kind of moving forward, we got the two, we got the three, but in the present, our latest edition is DSM-5, which came out in 2013. 
And the process of the construction of the DSM-5 was essentially a giant committee, a DSM committee that was composed um, of about 400 experts by the APA from fields such as psychiatry, psychology, epidemiology, primary care, neurology, pediatrics, and research areas with specific specializations. And basically, they split up into separate committees and they proposed changes or additions or retractions for the new edition. And it happens over a long period of time. They write up these reports and then they deliver the reports to the DSM-5 uh, task force, who then makes the call on what gets added or changed throughout the process. So there's a bunch of people uh, involved in what goes on. It's not like you can just like submit like, hey, I think y'all should like <laughs> add this thing in there. There has to be, in theory, there has to be a strong research base. Um, these committees can even request that research be done and immediately fund additional research throughout the process of this committee work to make those decisions. Um, so yeah, no, it's a very complicated process. Well, it's not necessarily complicated. It's just long and there's a lot of people involved. Yeah, the DSM-4, I think, originally came out in, what, 2000? And then there was a, or the text revision was from 2000. The original DSM-4 was even older than that. 1994. Yeah, so you got 94. Six years later, they put out a text revision because that's when the DSM-5 was supposed to come out. And then it's another 13 years after that for the DSM-5 comes out. And we're now, what, uh, eight years? So we've probably got mm -hmm. a good five to 10 years before we see the DSM-6. Yep. Um, and it's funny because like when they constructed the DSM-5, they're like, we promise we'll keep updating it more frequently. Sorry, yeah. guys. But they don't. I just, I mean, anyone who sat on a university committee mm -hmm. knows that things move slowly. <laughs> and to be fair, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing that the DSM changes slowly. Yeah, I mean, I would want enough research and I'd want them mm. to go like, oh, we don't have the research. Well, let's fund the research to make sure like we know what we're going to put in or whether we're going to take something out or whether something is more, you know, if it needs a change or if there's something that that has to be modified to some degree. Like one of the big changes from four to five was that different uh, the definitional differences between uh, various what we would now call autism spectrum disorder it was a cluster of these like different disorders depending on different specific demographic and symptom level um, diagnoses. And I mean, there's, there's some additional research that's come out now that that's going to probably set up like diagnostic differences between males and females, mm -hmm. which is something that I think the community's known for a while and, and people who have been diagnosed with autism have probably seen and known differences, but it's, mm -hmm. it's something like we're finally building that research up on. But that process, I mean, especially if you're going to put it out there as like, this is the definitive definition of what this is. We probably want it to be a really good, we don't want to jump the gun on it. Right. And also, you know, if we, just like moving quickly as well is going to like bring up a whole bunch of really ridiculous diagnoses, I feel like. So, you know, if we had one like every four years, like yeah. there probably would have been in like the 2016 edition, like electoralism anxiety or like, you know, um, COVID-19 specific criterias. 
Whereas like, that's like important in the moment, but not in the long term. Like it's just a cultural flashpoint. I was going to say one of the ones that almost came up in um, the DSM-5 was video game addiction, Mm -hmm. which didn't quite make it probably because you need a broader like media addiction, but then Mm -hmm. it, it brings up those complex clinical diagnostic questions of, well, what can you become addicted to? Is there a difference between just heavy consumption versus kind of a maladaptive engagement? And what's the difference between Tomb Raider and an opiate? (laughs) Well, I mean, some people would argue, if we go back to our neuroscience friends, would argue as long as there's dopamine flowing in the reward circuit of the brain, you could become addicted to anything. Great. you you can, I guess, but it, it's whether or not it's maladaptive. Mm-hmm. Anything can bring you pleasure. Uh, right. And also, if we had instituted a video game addiction, like, say, in, like, the early 2000s, 90s, when, like, that was, like, a big deal, it's not necessarily a big deal right now because we kind of, like, in reflection, we're like, oh, that was just a cultural boogeyman of, like, new media, like, old people freaking out. But, because but also, now everybody plays video games. But also, yeah. when you look at these differences, the DSM is not the only one. So that World Health Organization book, um, mm-hmm. or the World Medical Association book, like the IM, whatever, that one's um, that one actually does put it into the diagnostic criteria. They'll add anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, the I mean, the one that peeves me is the sex addiction. Um, because the World Health Organization has it in there, but the DSM rejected it. Yeah. And uh, under the, like, the major conflict of, like, sex addiction is that, like, typically when you have an addiction, we have to take you off of the thing that you're addicted to. And so for sex addiction, we don't make you stop having sex and become a nun. So is it an addiction at that point? Or is that, like, you know... Like what? What is the line between normalcy and an addiction there? So there's all sorts of all sorts of very dramatic histories with the DSM development, and I assume whenever uh, DSM six starts getting planned, oh yeah, shoot, we might get invited onto a committee. That's like a huge number of people. Probably not. Probably not. They'll hear but this. you know, there, I mean, there's a chance. <laughs> depending on how prolific we get. But there'll be a big slew of drama that emerges in the near future when DSM-6 starts getting planned. Um, it'll be the psychologist social event of the uh, decade. I, I mean, it is, it is every time that happens. There's this big disconnect, especially amongst more social-oriented researchers, more environmental-oriented researchers, and more medical-clinical-oriented researchers. I mean, even within the clinical field, there's a lot of pushback against this kind of over medicalization of mm-hmm. mental illness and the, the, the real fight focus against what it sort of, you know, represents is, is that, you know, again, putting people into boxes mm-hmm. doesn't always work for some people and some people, you know, it, it can be beneficial. I mean, that's one of the biggest earliest, criticisms was you know that and we'll talk about this in a little bit but that, that sort of identifying label that you get mm-hmm. but because it's very medical i mean it's kind of in the same way do we view this the same way we view you know do you view schizophrenia the same way you view cancer right um and, and in some ways 
we should. You know, you don't say that a person is cancerous. You don't say that, you know, the cancer doesn't define the person. It is the person has this diagnosis, much like schizophrenia is a diagnosis that's on top of the person's personality, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it is influencing them in a number of ways, and it can be treated. Mm-hmm. You shared an article with me that I'm still kind of ambivalent about, but it tackles this kind of question about it specifically with the context of autism Mm -hmm. and whether it's an autistic person or a person with autism. And from what I understood, the idea is that the person with autism kind of like others, the person and that you're adding additional labels onto them. Whereas the autistic person acknowledges that autism is like a part of their reality and integral to the self. Yeah. It's, it's a really fine line because I think it depends on like how we word a lot of these diagnoses because it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, do you just label someone? I mean, it's part of Rogerian person centered therapy is, is we want to start referring to people as people Mm -hmm. or clients instead of patients. And there's still that kind of disconnect within some people within the clinical field who actually do still prefer the term patient Mm -hmm. because it also, now it might be reverting back because patient does have a more kind of innocuous, I'm going to the doctor, like I got this thing I got to deal with. (laughs) Right. But that that this idea of how to label becomes difficult because I can definitely see in some cases that, you know, being a patient makes it a lot, maybe easier to understand like, oh, I'm going to the doctor for my checkup. Like I'm a patient at this clinic. I have medication that I take every mm-hmm. day. Like this is something that I would do versus that kind of more personalized aspect. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like shifting to discussing like people as clients or people as people might be more beneficial for that person who doesn't have a psychological disorder, but maybe needs to see a therapist or wants to see a therapist because of a momentary issue that they're having right i just had a funny thought this is a total non sequitur um but kind of in this context of like autistic person versus person with autism i was like well if this is dsm1 am i a gay person or do i have the gay (laughs) (laughs) that might be something we need to talk about per diagnosis yeah because this might be something that we see with individuals diagnosed with A may respond differently to different labels than individuals diagnosed with B. And then maybe individuals diagnosed with C are just a completely different group because mm-hmm. of maybe the nature. No. And I think there might also be a distinction between say like someone with schizophrenia or autism where that is like very present and embodied and like integral to their experience of the world. Yes. And obviously, like someone with depression is probably going to disagree with me on this because obviously, you know, we've all had the depression. We know it's very integral to your perception and conception of yourself. Yeah, but when you're, going, when you're going through those episodes. Yeah. If it's like two weeks of depression and then you move out of it, we could probably say you had depression, but you're obviously not going to have had autism or, yeah, or schizophrenia or something like that or the gay. Yeah. <laughs> But again, it gets it gets more complicated with these sort of very clear cut medical diagnoses because you have major depressive disorder, which is a period of about two weeks or at least two weeks, mm-hmm. decreased moods and symptoms every day, almost all day for at least two weeks. 
But then you have something like dysthymia, mm-hmm. which is a, a milder variation of that, but it's every day, all day for at least two years. Uh, and Grad school? I mean, <laughs> but, but also like for someone with like major depression, and I would imagine that you could have individuals with dysthymia, this misdiagnosed with major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very different thing. You're going to you're, you're going to break through that barrier at some point. I mean, you may move back down into the mood and into those lower aspects of mood, but, but for someone who who's, who's dealing with dysthymia, that's going to be far more pervasive, far more integral into their day-to-day life than you know, someone who is, is kind of going through a major depressive episode, but even then some of those can last very long. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's at least two weeks, but that doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, a year long. Right. Exactly. It gets into that complexity of, of trying to kind of set these very clear cut medical criteria for things that can vary so greatly from person to person mm-hmm. from, gender identity you know expression from childhood to adulthood i mean even depression is seen in children differently than it is in adults just minor symptoms that are different um and And even like within the dsm criteria too there's massive variants so like for example there was a study done um it's andion et al 2013 who looked at the borderline personality disorder for the DSM-5, and there's nine diagnostic criterias, and you have to meet five of them. And so if you perform an algorithmic combination, you get 256 distinct presentations of borderline personality disorder. And then there's some, like, we're just now looking at uh, aggression as a symptom of depression. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you're wondering, PTSD, there's 636,120 distinct uh, outcomes for. <laughs> and and there, there are a few that are clear cut. Like, so for example, um, I know that with something like schizophrenia, that if you have a very specific case, so if, if, you're, if you're hearing one or more voices and they're interacting with one another, or mm-hmm. one voice that is sort of documenting your day-to-day life and like kind of offering commentary, that's all you need. Right. But most of these do not have that sort of one clear-cut um, aspect. So there's that that heavy, here's kind of everything that could happen. Um, I mean, it, it's almost like saying, like, instead of diagnosing all these different types, we said, all right, so we have this one diagnosis for cancer. And here's every possible symptom of it. Mm-hmm. Of all cancers, of all, you know, X disease. And, you know, I, I don't think you'd find a lot of medical professionals who would be too excited about such a kind of singular focus or a singular focus for something that can be very broad or that can manifest differently. But we do, I mean, we do still see that in the medical community. You see that with mm-hmm. how they treat different groups of people, how certain illnesses manifest differently uh, amongst different individuals or different groups and sometimes they're dismissed because they're looked at differently or they are not experiencing the disorder in the way that this other person's experiencing the disorder or they the majority of people experience this disorder or 
maybe there's another similar disorder and they're like well mm-hmm. it's probably this one thing but it's really this other thing because there's so much uh overlap mm-hmm. yeah and speaking of the overlap there's also kind of a concern with the dsm too, is in that comorbidity is kind of the rule instead of the exception and so not only do we have within categories a ton of variants but we also have a ton of variants between categories and we talked earlier about this before we started recording, but yeah. you know, if you have depression, anxiety, or addiction, that's going to be comorbid with everything, right? Essentially, they're just because... so common. Mm-hmm. And so the utility, both internally and externally, of the criteria system is a little bit suspicious. Um, obviously, we need some sort of framework, um, but to treat it you know, as the Holy Bible would be misleading. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's as with any good piece of research, we need to understand the limitations mm-hmm. um, as with anything that we do. I mean, even with, and, and again, that, that, that kind of gets us into part of this problem with kind of this like medicalization, this, this idea mm-hmm. of how often it's treated. Um, I mean, on one hand, having that clear-cut definition does make it a lot easier for diagnosis which does make it a lot easier to seek and find treatment makes it a lot easier to tell the insurance company what you have so you can get it covered exactly and with i mean we're we're finally kind of (laughs) slowly moving towards a point where we're we're treating it a little better where insurance companies are treating it as illness um, though that overlap can cause additional problems. It can cause mm-hmm. problems with medical doctors or local doctors with little to no training, prescribing amphetamines, benzodiazepines yes. <laughs> uh, to treat a variety of symptoms. Would you, I will not set, tell you the clinic, but I did do some investigations as to how, you know, one at, say, a university town would get a hold of, uh, ADHD medication from a primary care physician. Do you go in and just tell them you have ADHD? They give you a piece of paper with Likert scales of how severe your symptoms are of copy and paste from the DSM criteria. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So you Um, go one to seven, how severe. So there is, you know, there it's, yeah, no, there that's part of the problem of the openness of the insurance that it created. The other problem, of course, is that now we're over-reliant on the categories because we have to have the categories in order to operate within the infrastructure of health insurance. Yeah, and so this there is, is no variance allowed when it comes to paying for it. It's kind of like a natural byproduct of that, you know, 50, I mean, pre-50s. We saw in the United States this like a rapid increase in, in institutionalization mm-hmm. um, of individuals um, where, you know, before you've got these institutions that are overflowing, we don't have the infrastructure forum. We don't have the trained professionals forum. I mean, even expanding the field of clinical psychology still doesn't really offer people um, enough people or mm-hmm. in enough places. So we still have all these gaps. Um, there are States that are doing better um, States like New Mexico, for example, have pathways for master's level. I mean, there's a lot of additional training you have to go through than just getting a master's degree, but master's level clinical psychologists or or clinical counselors who are able to kind of step in and fill in those gaps without the PhD because they kind of recognize like (laughs) we don't have the people. And as long as they're being, they're trained, 
they're they're being supervised they have to undergo a period of like supervised licensure before they can even open up a private practice mm-hmm. but it offers them that pathway a lot of states don't do that and it's right. being, and and so the institutions where people have kind of i mean we still have institutions for severe cases very severe cases but now we're sort of moving away from that and the institutions are now the community and the only people to serve that community is the local doctor. And just like our kind of over-reliance on potentially untested and under-understood procedures like the lobotomy. Right. Are influencing, you know, maybe this, this likelihood to engage in um, over-prescription uh, of right. like, like benzodiazepines and whatnot. And, and so I, I think we, we kind of mentioned adding to our notes that, you know, like this kind of conspiracy with big pharma and like there, there are definitely these connections and there's definitely this, this overuse and this overprescription. but part of it's sort of like, I mean, yeah, there's the marketing side and there's how they interact with doctors. There's a lot of good stuff out there on that. If you want to understand that better, mm-hmm. but it's a byproduct of the system. It's a byproduct of a bunch of people who are like, I can't treat this person's anxiety because I'm not a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. But and I'm the only people. person in town who can take care of it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm working in rural Texas or rural New Mexico or just rural America. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the local pharmacy is like, well, take this and let me know how, how bad you're, you're kind of dealing with these symptoms. And will kind of use See what happens best judgment yeah, yeah exactly um i did want to bring up you know you talked about kind of our de uh institutionalization this you know i hear uh foucault in my head again but there has been like this massive decrease and i think part of it might be due to like all the soldiers co- soldiers coming home from world war ii because the primary way to take care of people with mental health issues was to institutionalize them um, but then, you know, if you have, you know, America's good old boys coming home with problems, it's not like you're going to lock all of them up at once they get here. It, it is also tied to, and I think it's the seventies, I forget what year, 70, oh, I forget the, 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 forget the specific year, but in the 1970s. So we, we have like, yeah, in like in the seventies and eighties, we start to see the beginning of like the community psychology movement. Now this is kind of post institution, but mm-hmm. it's the beginning of, of starting to see the drop. And I mean, if we're looking at maybe like post-Vietnam, you've got Mm -hmm. an additional influx of soldiers coming back. Again, can't just institutionalize all these people. And so so the community psychology program sets up and that really does put a bigger focus on the community. So they were training reverends and community leaders and and, um, other people within the community to be running things like self-help groups. There's this massive influx of um, we call like pseudo-professionals. So people who do get some training from mm-hmm. professionals or maybe there's like a professional within the community who's overseeing a number of these like paraprofessionals not pseudo professionals they're not false they're pa- and so we actually find that it kind of worked that mm-hmm. when they were p- putting money into these communities when they were offering help um they were basically taking people out of the institution and putting them kind of like what we talked about last week putting them in these communities that um hey it turns out if the community supports you, if the people you do in the a lot better are aware of you, yeah, you end up doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it also we should mention too that like during the sixties and the seventies, there was so like there were two different waves of like reactions against psychiatry yeah. in general from the general public. 
Um, you had the anti-psychiatry movement in the 60s, which was primarily made up of people who were essentially abused in these institutions. I mean, they, you, you've got the lobotomy, you've got the electro oh. electroshock therapy, mm-hmm. um, you know, being widely used and, and beyond what its original function was, was there to be used right. for. It's being used so. on everyone as opposed to as a last resort. Mm-hmm. So there was that movement that happened in the 60s that was very influential. Um, and then you also have some anti-DSM stuff going on with like SAS at the same time. Um, and then in the 70s, you have gay liberation, women's uh, second wave feminism, and then uh, disability activists who had also been abused by the institutional system and called that out as well. So there were two different like social waves that, you know, kind of took psychology out of the institution and into the community. Um, and psychology's gotten so much better, but like these people aren't wrong. No, they're not. Like if you get like, that's why we're called shrinks. That's why people don't like, there's a good reason why people don't seek mental health care. Um, one of yeah, my friends yeah. talked about how their grandmother, I believe had schizophrenia or, she develops schizophrenia because the doctor removed like two thirds of her stomach. Oh my God. Yeah. Like crazy stuff happens. Um, And like says like to me was always one of those where like you read some of his work or you read some of the criticisms that he has and you're like, I get it. Like you're right. Mm -hmm. And the only reason he's ever, he's really been like, like censured and like his, he's really heavily criticized now is that, he never stopped like making the same arguments even as the field did get better. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I don't even know but, if I would say that it like, I don't know. I'm kind of depressing, but <laughs> I don't know if I would say that the field got better. I would just say that it changed. So we get, you know, we drop the old problems and we pick up the new problems, you know, like Foucault points to several times in all of his works that like, you know, what's the difference between, the public execution and then the person slowly rotting in jail alone. Like they're both violent, but they both have different like consequences that society has to grapple with. And so like, we may say it's more humane to lock people up than like hang them at the gallows, but it's both terrible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I could see, I could see the, the argument there to say something like benzodiazepine use for Mm -hmm. severe anxiety treatment is better because it's not immediately destroying large chunks of the brain. Uh, Right. It's not a lobotomy, but also we know that benzodiazepines cause you to get similar symptomology as if you had, uh, what is it? Retrograde amnesia. And so overdoses are highly risky with them, particularly like Xanax because people take them and then they forget that they took them. So they keep taking them all day. Yeah. And then, you know, without the therapy to go along with it. So again, you don't have that infrastructure. You don't have those people Mm -hmm. involved because we're still dealing with that lack of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. So what do you do? You go to the doctor, you say, I'm feeling really stressed out. And the doctor goes, I take these, take these pills. Here's some Zanny. And they're cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're much cheaper than... I, uh, I shared this story with my class because I remember um, after a car accident, I had gone in, my, my knee was bothering me, and um, I went in for 
for something else. And I was like, my knee's also bothering while I'm here. Like, like my knee's bothering me. And like, I, I want to know, like, is it, or is it my knee or my hand? And I was like, I don't know, like if something's broken, I don't know, like if I sprained something and the doctor, you know, kind of looked me over and was like, all right, well, here's some antibiotics for this other thing you've got. And here's a prescription for some pain relievers. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I mean, it's not like, you know, like it's not painful. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, going to the pharmacy and, you know, getting my prescription for both. And I was like, all right, 70 bucks for your 10 days of antibiotics. $3 and 50 cents for this big old bottle of Valium or Xanax or whatever it was at the time. And I was like, um, Mm-hmm. That, that's a pretty big discrepancy in cost so it's 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 also much more cost effective it's much more cost effective to get on something like that as opposed to you know going and seeing a therapist if your insurance company's not going to cover it right and if you don't have the time or right. have to drive to go see the therapist um one of my favorite assignments for my intro class that i have to rewrite now because i'm moving to new mexico <laughs> is I picked a bunch of small towns around the area and made fictitious people with mental uh, health concerns that needed treatment with varying degrees of access to transportation and time and insurance. And the students had to like figure out how to like get someone their treatment for their PTSD or their borderline or their anxiety. And they had an awful time doing that. Like <laughs> they're... Imagine. Their journals, I made them journal their experience and like document all their dead ends that they found. And oh man, they ended up writing more in their journals than they did the treatment like plan because they were like, well, I tried this, but then this didn't work. And then I tried this and then this didn't work. And then their insurance didn't line up. But then I realized that the only person they could see is during the time that they had classes. Or work. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I would say that we're better. I would say that we're different. We just have different problems that we have to deal with because we definitely haven't figured it out yet. I, I guess I guess what we could say is, is that in the next, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years, we'll be having these broader conversations about things like benzo use and things like that, um, that, that we were having with things like thalotomy and electroshock therapy like we have developed more humane, more efficacy-based ways. So we do have things like electroconvulsive therapy still today, but they're last resort use. It's and it's like way low voltage and and very different. Mm-hmm. And, and I would then, you know again I would like to say I'm optimistic. And yes, you, but I did some digging. And I looked into the financial ties of the APA and the people that put together the DSM, and it's not pretty. Um, this article I found, uh, let's see, this is from Cosgrove et al. Um, in Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics Journal. Found that in the construction of the DSM-4, the 170 DSM panel members, 56% of them had one or more financial associations with companies in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then in the panels dedicated to mood disorders, so that'll be our depression and anxiety. And then oh. our the other panel was the schizophrenia and other psychotic, uh, psychotic disorders. So all of the panel members had ties to pharmaceutical companies. Most widely researched, most widely diagnosed, mm-hmm. at least with anxiety and mood disorders. <sighs> I mean, this is, 
Yeah. So yeah. that's that, you know, and when we pair that with like the knowledge of the opiate crisis and like Purdue Pharma, who like literally had a conspiracy to like get people addicted to their medication, I'm and like, it, <sighs> and it, it's, it's sad that this, I mean, this was predominantly pain management related, but this has helped to spurn the discussion about things like benzo prescriptions or amphetamine mm-hmm. prescriptions to help with these these particular disorders i'm like wait wait maybe we are over diagnosing these maybe we need to expand i mean th- there have been talks for for years in, in a lot of states about expanding things like prescription amongst clinical with additional training and it's it heavy pushback the doctors don't want it because they want they want to bring those people in mm-hmm. And the psychiatrists don't want it because, I mean, there there was a fight in the 40s to even create, you know, kind of a clinical psychology subset, this sort of non-medical aspect of of psychology. And so I kind of have something damning as well in relation to our DSM-4. Francis, who chaired the task force for the DSM-4. Uh, has openly has been openly critical of the current DSM-5 by referring to the DSM as, quote, the Bible of psychiatry, the go-to place to find out who is sick and who is not, and playing into the hands of, scare quotes, big pharma, who are reaping multi-billion dollar profits. According to Francis, quote, extensive research has had no effect on psychiatric diagnosis, which still relies exclusively on failable subjective judgments rather than objective biological tests. Psychiatric diagnosis is facing a renewed crisis of confidence caused by diagnostic inflation. And it's going to be the next big discussion that the APA and these boards need to have is, is that, you know, mm-hmm. we had the discussion a couple of years ago regarding uh, the Guantanamo Bay torture incidents, mm-hmm. which offered a lot of self-reflection, broke a lot of ties with the Defense mm-hmm. Department. Turns out a lot of people at the top of the the APA were like in cahoots, getting funding, doing all this like buddy buddy stuff with the DOD. And now, I mean, this has been, I mean, this has been going on since the APA has been the APA. Right. I mean, and it's, you know, it's everywhere. So I don't want to like critique like individual workers, like psychiatrists and counselors, because even like you and I know someone who's a great researcher who is about to get funded by the army. Yeah. Their (laughs) research. So you know, you, when you're on the ground doing the work, you got to get the money. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. So there's like that aspect of it, too, that I don't necessarily like critique them morally. Um, and also there's an issue as well. You know, we kind of talked about like over medicalization and kind of the suspiciousness of the populace when it comes to medicine and psychiatry in general. But one of the conversations that's going on like within academia is this idea of uh, disease mongering. And so I pulled up from the British uh, Pharmacological Society where they describe some of the strategies of disease mongering and how it differs from, so like disease mongering occurs in the marketing office of the pharmaceutical company not the research labs where they develop said drugs. And so some of these tactics that they use um, where they medicalize ordinary ailments like balding, for example, or they quote, see mild symptoms as serious, like in the case of irritable bowel syndrome, 
or treating personal or social problems as medical ones, like in the case of social phobia, conceptualizing risk as a disease in of itself, like in the case of osteoporosis, or framing prevalence estimates to maximize potential markets, like in the case of erectile dysfunction. So there are some serious problems that are being talked about, like outside of what your uncle says at Thanksgiving. Yeah. So like he's like he's not necessarily right, but he's got a grain of truth there. Well, and part of that is is due to that commercialization of it too. That instead of going to your doctor and saying like, "Hey, like for the last," I mean, we also have additional stigmas when it comes to the mental illness side of things because a lot of people aren't going to go to their doctor and say, "Hey, you know, for the last like couple of weeks, I've been really down." Mm-hmm. Like, not everyone's going to do that. Um, and in fact, very few people might actually do that if they don't understand. Like, wait, this is something, and this kind of gets us into some of these social factors. Is that, you know part of a benefit to having something like a diagnostic criteria or at least a a general label now maybe if we defined it a little differently maybe if we viewed it as more of like a social a a difference between like biological social you know this kind of combined factor that 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 may influence let's say depressive symptoms by understanding that there is this thing called depression it does involve it's not just being sad it's a prolonged extended abnormal sadness mm-hmm. not necessarily caused by something else and so you know you have death in the family and you're feeling down because of that grieving it could lead oh daniel but, they so in dsm4 in the depression they said exclude or consider bereavement they removed that little excerpt in dsm5 oh that's good so because it, it can it can it can be that triggering factor. I mean, that kind of gets us into sort of these. But that's also kind of the question of: Are we medicalizing the ordinary? Because you know, if somebody dies in your family, that's a very human thing to yeah. bereave. And so, like DSM four, I feel like had it right that you know yeah. when you're diagnosing this, you need to consider: Is this person grieving? Right. And is it something else? So like there's, there's usually the caveats in most of the, the diagnostic criteria that it's not the result of some drug. It's not the result of some other medical condition. So maybe, mm. maybe a person is hearing voices, but it turns out it's a brain tumor. Right. It's not schizophrenia. Um, and then there are also like cultural and, and other aspects. I mean, it's probably something that there's something that, that most books bring up, but like in order to be, a psychological disorder or kind of fall within this realm of mental illness. It needs to fit three categories. It needs to be distressing to the individual. Mm -hmm. It needs to be maladaptive in their day-to-day life. And it needs to be uh, kind of deviant within the context of their culture. So this is, and and this is the broader culture. This is not like me and my friends don't like that, or this group I belong to doesn't like that. So it's deviant. No, this is the broader context. Um, so like we talked about shaman last time, like shamanism isn't considered schizophrenia because within the context of that culture, communicating, you know, or, or having these, these kind of moments. Being the intermediary with the spirit world is normal and And, expected of you. And and if we say otherwise, and we need to have a long talk with our priests about being the intermediary (laughs) (laughs) between the spirit world. But yeah, that, that there are these, these labels you know, in a way can be helpful for people though, is, is that because, you know, it's kind of that idea that there are some like rare medical conditions that people suffer with. And then they find out one day, like, Oh wait, I've been dealing with that my entire life. 
Um, and we look at other aspects of identity too. And, and we could talk about, you know, issues of people who have kind of always known or felt certain ways and like, well, wait, like this explains like everything that I've, I've been mm-hmm. experiencing. And so there is this, this kind of helpful side of that, but we do need to take into consider, you know, these other, these other aspects. So, um, mm-hmm. so there are kind of two things, um, I guess we'll, we'll move into like social factors. And, and so with things like onset and diagnosis, the one thing that comes to mind, especially when like we're trying to decide, right, is something like, you know, bereavement, there's some other medical condition, but what, what could happen? I mean, you, you could definitely have someone who, let's say, goes through a normal period of bereavement, but never gets out of it. Right. And that would be different than someone who experiences that bereavement period. Mm-hmm. The way I describe like anxiety disorders to my students is like, there are plenty of times when you are anxious. You've got a test coming up. Hey, it's almost finals week for my students. Right. You know, that's going to make you anxious. You've got, let's say, a doctor's appointment that can make you anxious. You're driving down the road and there are police lights behind you. That can make you anxious. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that there's not that, nece- not necessarily that cause, or that cause is creating anxiety far more mm-hmm. than would be considered average within kind of the cultural context. Right. And that's kind of where I would push back on bereavement. Like when you say like, they never get out of it. Like we got to question what is normal grief in our current 21st century environment? (laughs) Because like we don't get leave from work for grief. Right. Most of the time we can go to the funeral, but you got to be back at work on Monday. Um, But like throughout history, like in the Victorian era, like women had like an entire like, stage process of different outfits that they had to wear for an entire year and not leave their house if their husband died. And so, you know, like the culture provided a space for grief there. And if grief is a normal human function and a normal human experience, the way that we contextualize and structure how we experience grief probably also like has a lot to do with when it's like quote unquote maladaptive. If you're, you know, if you have to like expedite your grieving process for the weekend on your flight to and from your grandmother's funeral, as opposed to, I have to like stay inside for the next six months and like change out different like dark colored dresses as I process the loss of this important family member. If we did that now, you would probably get major depressive disorder and maybe something else. (laughs) Yeah. The, the, PTSD is a really good example of this like fine line to walk because the way they describe it is, is, is that this kind of persistent set of symptoms that are lasting like, I think it's like six months after the initial trauma. And so like, they do understand like people who experience trauma do experience this period of intrusive thoughts, reliving the events, they go through Mm -hmm. these kind of stages involved with trauma, but like who decides six months? Right. What does that mean? And that got there. There was a NPR report years ago that looked into the army's kind of diagnosis of of soldiers with PTSD. And what's happening is is that they'd come back from their tour, they'd undergo their clinical screening, and they would be like, "No, they're fine." But then, like six months later, they would develop, they'd start to develop symptoms, or they would start to develop things like alcohol dependency for self medication. Mm-hmm. And then they would start acting out. And then because they're acting out or because like these other things are becoming maladaptive, hey, 
like six months ago, they they were cleared. They were cleared on a mental health screening. But it was this understanding like now they would be diagnosed with PTSD. Right. But initially coming back because of a lot of things, because of cultural things, because of masculine things, because of a lot of different factors. You just flew back into the country and now you're home and you've gotten to sit still for six months and like sit in what happened to, happened to you over the last like couple years. And and it starts coming back. And then what would happen is, is these individuals would be, they'd be court-martialed, they'd be discharged, uh, dishonorably discharged. And guess what happens when you're dishonorably discharged? You get Tell no me. benefits. You get no, no benefits. You get no ability to go to the VA and get treatment. Or when you go to the VA, because of, again, institutional infrastructure problems, even if you didn't get that dishonorable discharge, you're going to have trouble. Yep. Nope. So context means quite a bit. Um, One of the things that I found, like, particularly within the realm of, like, our substance abuse and our depression and anxiety and suicidality brought me to... uh, deaths of despair which are shockingly on the rise right now and this was documented by uh princeton university economists and case and angus deaton who found that like the highest so deaths of despair are specifically deaths associated with anxiety depression opiate abuse alcohol abuse and then willful suicide and they found that was it white middle-aged men in rural areas have the highest rate of any other like category within the country of these deaths, but also compared to other white men of their same age group in other countries. And it's localized in these rural communities that have deindustrialized over the last years where there was a factory, they had a job, they had their benefits, they were taking care of their family, they had purpose and meaning and a social identity with what they did, and then that job was taken away and the factory was shut down and now they don't have anything. And so, you know, we can say like, oh, it's all in your head, like kind of our biological model the DSM is running with, um, which has merit, of course, but also like that's an environmental trigger, like that's an entire life upheaval. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me that, you know, we're seeing that as, you know, all these small towns die um, before our eyes. And, and there's a wide variety of other social factors that play into something like that, too, because you have these cultural differences of, is this something you talk about? Because mm-hmm. your dad surely didn't talk about his mental health problems and your dad's dad didn't talk about it. And your buddy down the street doesn't talk about it because if you talk about it, it kind of makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of bottle it up or you're supposed to suck it up. or you are supposed to put on a good face for your family or for the community? Because like, Hey, you got to be the strong one. And, and I mean, if you're living in despair, like you got to be strong too. Like, yeah. that's, you know, like we can call it like a toxic masculinity trait, but also like these people are dying. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, to get up and go, go do, you know, go do whatever you need to do. You know, you're, you're kind of, especially without that infrastructure. So you don't mm-hmm. have, and that's the other thing. Like, even if you wanted to go out and talk to someone, even if you wanted to go and get help, who? Who? Exactly. And then, al- and then also informational wise, because that infrastructure is lacking, what you tend to probably see are those maybe commercials for Prozac or something. Yep. Like, but they're that's not, where, 
but they're not that's, made for you. <laughs> that's they're your not, literacy understanding of what's going on is your commercials. Right. And I mean, you know, you're watching that and you're probably like, well, that's not what I'm going through because, you know, maybe they, they note a couple of symptoms, but they're not noting the broad range of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Maybe you tap into one of those, but not the others. Maybe the side effects scare you off. Maybe there's something else going on. But again, the people who take Prozac, I mean, that's the kind of jokes that they make on the sitcoms and that's the, that's for the waspy, you know, person. That's not for me, working class John Smith. Mm -hmm. That's, that's for these other people or that's for, for these different cases or when they are finally portrayed, you know, something like depression isn't being portrayed, you know, maybe more recently a little better, but it's not being portrayed, you know, for the, the person who's watching mm -hmm. TV in rural America. Right. And, you know, even like, let's say that our fictional working class man does make it to the doctor for his problems. Cause like, let's say his wife makes them. Yeah. His only literacy about what's happening to him is from those commercials. So you go in as a consumer, you don't go in as a patient. Right. And so you could have a doctor who says like, well, you know, like, like we mock people who go and look up their symptoms on WebMD. But where else are they? Yeah. And, and, and again, you go into that, that doctor's office and you're, you're telling the doctor that and the doctor either says like, oh, like, nope, that does sound like, let's say anxiety here's some benzodiazepines and I've got a coupon for you right here. And what's really sad about this too is, is that so something like, like benzodiazepines can be effective to help treat anxiety, mm -hmm. but, and, and this is what every, every psych textbook will tell you when it talks about biomedical treatment is that they're, they're one highly addictive. They have very extreme side effects and they should only be used for the treatment of immediate symptoms. They're best paired with talk therapy. Right. And if you pair them, if you have a therapist there who can help the person work through their problems, who can help them kind of better understand themselves to talk out these issues that they're having. And then when they're having these kind of attacks, when they're having those panic attacks, when they're having those anxiety attacks, they can use the benzodiazepines to calm themselves down and then they can go talk to their therapist. Mm -hmm. There's no infrastructure. And nope. so you end up with these individuals who they get the benzodiazepine, but they have no one to talk to because they're still not talking to their buddy down the street. They're probably not even telling their buddy down the street that they're on benzos mm -hmm. because that's going to even come with some stigma. And the sad thing is, is their buddy down the street's probably experiencing the same thing that they're experiencing because they yep. both worked at the same plant together, you know, and, and, and again, the only literacy, the only information that they're going to get is from, these media sources so they're seeing the commercials or they're watching some you know low budget dr oz talk piece on mm -hmm. how to how to better your mental health but he's not really doing it for them he's doing it for the people who can buy the supplements and who can buy this other stuff dollar book yeah right and and so they're going to kind of build that into the other stuff that they're being i, I highly recommend for anyone who kind of want to wants to understand the ongoing nature of rural America and the problems that they face. And this is not a new book, but uh, there's a book called deer hunting with Jesus. And it's this um, uh, Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania factory town guy. He goes off to New York and he becomes a journalist and he returns home and he writes a book kind of from a more, 
I guess, non, someone who grew up in a conservative environment trying to help explain, like, you have to understand, like, what these people are going through to understand, like, them. Mm-hmm. And, like, if you want to, you know, it's easy for us to demonize other groups. It's easy for us to kind of, like, you know, put people in a lot of these situations down for a number of reasons. But that social environment is so heavily constructing a lot of these things that they're they're kind of dealing with Mm -hmm. and and also why they're not going to go seek the health care or they're not going to reach out to their friend down the street or they're not going to talk about these problems it's this Mm -hmm. long these long-standing cultural social psychological issues that are kind of playing a role in that and it's it's Mm -hmm. very it's very good if if you want to get some perspective taking on on other mm-hmm. groups especially if if you're not involved like if, if you if you've never lived in a rural environment right um, it's and it's, of course a good pairing is going to be case and deaton's 2020 book deaths of despair and the future of capitalism yeah where they kind of outline the material conditions that also underlie what's going on as well so yeah no it's and kind of building on your point you know with the talk therapy too I've also, in like, you know, like the self-help, like, you know, we're in like from the 70s to the present, we're in a very like CBT, like self-help, like let's get you in and out of this like talk therapy session in like a couple weeks. I wonder too, if that's even enough time to deal with some of these things. Like I understand like the benefit of CBT, of course, is that there's like a lot of hardcore research dedicated to it. So I'm not going to like knock it, but also... I wonder what we lost when say like you were seeing your psychotherapist for like a couple years and you got to build that rapport and that relationship with that person over a long period of time. Well, I think the benefit of that too comes from programs like, like, like keeping that side of the benefit, you know, like, like, so like we, we, we are very CBT focused in, in cognitive psychology. Um, a lot of psycho, a lot of clinical psychologists though are moving towards more like eclectic approaches, which is, mm-hmm. is a, as a social psychologist, I'm a huge fan of this, this idea yes. that there is no perfect therapy for any one person. And so what you do is you train your clinicians and practice in a variety of different techniques and they go in to the office, they're talking to a client, they're talking to a patient and they basically say like, all right, we're going to try a couple of things. We're going to see what clicks and that's what we're going to focus on. Mm-hmm. So if, if talk therapy works, that's what they tend to focus on. If the more cognitive side works, or, and that's why CBT has become so popular because you either had the cognitive therapy or the behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. You didn't really have this integrated approach. And when you start integrating it, we see more efficacy, we see more effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and so these eclectic approaches, and then you have other, other fields, um, clinical counseling, not, not like psychological clinical counseling, but counseling, social work, these, these other fields that are starting to be, I mean, they're not starting to become more, they are very grounded in a lot of ways, but they're kind of filling in a lot of those gaps that mm-hmm. clinical psychologists traditionally filled because this, it's usually in most states a PhD level. Mm-hmm. It's, it's usually something that, again, that the average person isn't going to go see the clinical psychologist. They're going to go see a counselor or they're going to go see a social worker. And, there are also groups that are highly overworked, highly underpaid. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we have programs across the country who are churning out highly effective, highly trained individuals in these groups, and it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And even like 
just I noticed this when I was job hunting, easy, like four fifths of all of the jobs for professors were clinical psychology. Because there's like a huge need for more clinical psychologists and for people to train clinical psychologists. Yeah. And so, I mean, at the very least, you have states that are putting more funding into something like that. And it's Mm -hmm. good. I'm going to try to be optimistic that it's not too little too late. Right. Yeah. No, I don't think it's ever too little too late. Right. But I think with every paradigm shift, at least thus far, you know, we trade some, we get rid of some of the bad and then we implement some new and then the new comes with some more bad that we have to iron out. I mean, but it's like I can, we can go back to that community psychology we talked about. Do you you know what killed community psychology? Reagan. Well, (laughs) the the lack of funding. It turns out when you're putting money into these programs, they're helping. And then when you decide like, "Mm, no, 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 no. Uh, no, we need an upward transfer of wealth. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's still stuff we didn't we didn't really touch on because there's so much. There's just there, yeah, we had to cram an entire like clinical psych into one episode, and I think the only things that you know we could probably touch on, and we'll touch on more of this next week. I think uh, we're having Angie Proctor on to talk about trauma specifically yeah. and kind of how it's dealt with when within educational contexts. So you know back to the community aspect of it we're training educators who see children more than they see their parents how to deal with trauma and traumatic symptoms and you know formulating a classroom to help with that so we are moving in more positive directions i'll I'll give you that I'll, i'll probably have a lot to say about the fact that we're training a lot of these people to do that but we're also not paying them anymore and we're expecting them now to be therapists and trauma specialists and everything under the boat. I, I, have, I have too much respect for the people who are, you know, teaching and working in those fields because mm-hmm. they do a lot. And yeah, it's a ridiculous. They're... I mean, you know, like we 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 complain a lot in academia about things like you know service and like the little things that we deal with, but there's there's just another level. Oh yeah, and a lot like... a lot a lot less control. We get a lot more. And I love my students, but I'm so happy that I only see them twice a week, not five times a week, all day, every week. <laughs> I was going to say, I love my students, but I also love the fact that they're adults and I can work mm-hmm. with them as opposed to having their parents yell at me, though it sometimes happens. It sometimes, sometimes happens. Sometimes a parent shows up at the psych office and starts. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I've <laughs> never been the target, so, but. But yeah, I mean, just, just a lot to think about in, in terms of like, and, and there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, we could probably go on for another two hours and probably still be kind of scratching the surface on some of these issues and, and some of these, these underlying problems that we're moving. I mean, we're moving in a, mm-hmm. in a I would argue, the right direction. It's, but like with a lot of things, it's slow. And a lot of this has less to do with I would say the fields of like clinical psychology and other clinical fields like counseling and social work and um, things like that. And really more to do with kind of those infrastructural larger differences. Yeah, no, it's definitely like, I feel like we started out talking about clinical and then we, yeah. you know, the, co- the political context of counseling and clinical psychology is where we need to do the work. But yeah, I mean, like, but we could sit here and complain about the DSM, but the DSM's, not the biggest problem 
Nope. To what's going on. Like if the DSM never changed from now for another 30 years, but all the infrastructure changed and we had more people in these, in these communities, it'd be, it'd be a million times better. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. like, we would still be arguing about aspects of the DSM. Oh, of course. But we're academics. That's what we do. Right. It would, it would be a far more beneficial approach because, Mm -hmm. you know, again, that's not necessarily the issue, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And again, like the doctor prescribing the stuff is is a symptom of the problem, right? It's it's the person who's like, I can't sit with you for an hour long treatment to talk about your problems. The mm-hmm. most I could do is prescribe this thing to you because I have that ability to. And it's mm-hmm. good that we have doctors who can at least say, like, All right, I can get you on an antidepressant. Yeah, because that's better than nothing. Right. But it's definitely a reflection of our quick fix society right now. Right. And that's also different. I, I, I'll, I'll bring up as a last kind of quasi beleaguered note is that even with something like that, antidepressants take four to eight weeks to start working. And so that, that, you know, even, even in those cases, like we have these quicker fixes, but like a quick fix could be two months. And like mm. that person doesn't, again, doesn't have that infrastructure for two months. So right. Probably, and also, you have to be able to afford those things. If you you got to afford two months before you start maybe feeling anything mm-hmm. better. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think that's you know I agree. It's not so much that I'm. I mean, obviously, there's theoretical concerns with the DSM and clinical psychology, but like I said earlier, like I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I'm not really gonna like dive too deeply into that but you know just coming from a social psych perspective like i can look at the political landscape and what's happening around us and going "Ooh, this isn't working guys yeah i mean even just how we frame things Mm -hmm. it it takes a lot of a certain type of people before it becomes an opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. despite the fact that those opioids have been an epidemic long before we started talking about it And it, yeah, it, just, it turns out if you're just one family with too much money, you can just cause your own epidemic. Yeah. To rake in profits. So. Mm-hmm. Not something else to keep in mind. These pharmaceutical companies are not here to make you better. They're here to make money by making you better. And like you said, there's that difference between the person doing the research and developing the medication. And the person and, marketing. And the person marketing it. It's a, yep. it's a symptom of this underlying problem. Yeah, I wonder what that problem is, Daniel. <laughs> we keep we keep brushing it. I, I, I'm so opaque, I can't tell. <laughs> so I guess to make sure this doesn't go on too long, and this is fairly short, but I think a good discussion talking about mm-hmm. core core concepts and some of the more environmental aspects that are that are kind of going on behind the scenes that we don't get to talk about in class. Guess I should cover our bias of the week. Huzzah! I'm getting really out there, um, but I was thinking about like aspects of mental illness, and again, I think you brought it up perfectly with uh, was it the, the the disease mongering? I think that's uh-huh. perfect with our bias of the week, so it kind of worked out. It's regression bias. Ooh, it's a phenomenon where people generally overestimate the frequency of rare events and underestimate the frequency of common events. And so, mm, so like you're more likely to like die by an airplane part falling out of the sky than you are by shark attack. 
Yeah, and uh, no, my my favorite um, comparison with shark attacks is uh, more people die a year from cows, oh, than sharks. Interesting. Yeah, people try to go out cow tipping, and then the cows don't like that. So no. But um, but yeah, and I mean, it, it's a basic psychological function. It's just that the stuff you hear about all the time you tend to just process as the norm. So you don't really process it new, but rare stuff is novel. And so that rare stuff sticks with us. Mm -hmm. And so things that happen more rarely, we're probably going to like remember more because they're, they're more at the forefront in our mind. So Mm -hmm. my favorite instance of this, which personally happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So I was feeling very anxious about the volcano under Yellowstone erupting and killing all of us. And so that was very present in my mind. I was like, oh, we're going to get covered in like five feet of ash and we're all going to suffocate and die. And then I looked it up and it turns out that we're more likely to uh, have a civilization ending asteroid hit the planet than uh, the Yellowstone supervolcano erupting. I mean, it is something that, you know, will happen eventually. <laughs> <laughs> But right, like the actual odds. I mean, in the same way that people think that like winning the lottery. Actually, it may not happen, I found out also. So it's drifting north because of the platelet shifts, the tectonic shifts. And as it moves north, the lava is cooling. And Ah. so it's likely to turn into a giant block of granite before it erupts. Well, even better. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, a couple billion years from now, I'm going to tell you i told you so (laughs) when the new civilizations unearth the giant block of granite yeah and so we we can look at this in some aspects of 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 psychological illness i mean there are some disorders that are far more prevalent and sometimes we don't this this can also be tied to perception of rarity and and commonality Mm -hmm. you know how much we're talking about it how much we're actually being exposed to it how much a lot of that stuff like we're still not talking. I mean, some spheres we're talking about it a lot more, mm-hmm. but in other spheres, it's still like, mm, no, I'm not gonna, yeah. not gonna say anything. Yep. So yeah, now with our with our bias of the week, I yeah, I guess we'll I guess we'll wrap it up. I can't I can't beat last week's outro. So <laughs> right no, Too and hopefully awesome. next week we'll be more optimistic with trauma. Hmm. I think we will be though. Angie yeah. Proctor is an angel. Um, and I, I really look forward to it. Yes, it's, I'm very excited. So we'll see you next week. Yeah, with that, uh, goodbye. Bye.